Thank you for coming. For those of you who are new, we are glad that you are here. For those of you that are exploring the Christian faith, we are very glad that you are here. There are uh, many of you. Uh, for those of you who are exploring maturing in your Christian faith, a special welcome to you as well. We take time during our service every week to look at a passage of the Bible. The Bible is God's Word, and we believe it to be authoritative. And we're doing a special series on the things that we hold dear as a church that we think Jesus has asked us to hold dear as a church. And this morning we're looking at the value of mercy, mercy, mercy and justice. And so this morning we're going to look at a passage from Mark chapter 10 as Jesus is journeying on His way to Jerusalem. He gets to a place called Bethany, and here for our Scripture reading is Hannah. Good morning. The scripture reading for today comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. His name was Daniel. Daniel is my name. But I didn't know his name when I met Daniel. I met him in our former building because we had a walkway or an alleyway that was filled with snow, and he was experiencing homelessness and was filled with hunger. And so he came to me as I was walking in and said, hey, do you know who owns this building? And I said, yes, our church does. He says, can I shovel the snow for $20? And I said, sure. He shoveled the snow. I gave him the money. He walked away with $20. I walked away feeling good about myself. I had done someone a good deed. I had helped someone experiencing homelessness get a meal. And I had solved the problem of the snow in the alleyway. I was happy, and I was blind. In doing what I did, I missed the mission of Jesus. I didn't have eyes to see what Jesus wanted me to see, or a heart to feel what Jesus wanted me to feel. And maybe you can relate a little to this story. Maybe the issue of mercy, the issue of caring for the poor and the marginalized and the broken fills you with very conflicting emotions. If you can resonate with me, then let's go on a journey together through this text and see what God wants us to hear from this text and what God wants us to see 
about the mission of Jesus. Jesus here teaches us something about mercy and something about justice. Mercy for you and me who are Christians tends to sound like a synonym for grace, and we tend to use them synonymously, but they differ. Mercy and grace do both arise from the love and compassion of God. They are similar in that, but they can be distinguished. Biblically speaking, grace has as its primary view the forgiveness and the overlooking of sin. Mercy has as its primary view the restoration from misery. Grace looks sin in the eye and decides to love and forgive and overlook. Mercy looks misery in the eye and decides not to look away, but to act and to restore. Mercy is a direct result of the curse of sin, as grace is a direct response to the guilt of sin. They have this in common, but they are different expressions of the heart of love toward you and toward me. For God is the source of grace and mercy, and in this story we find the incarnation of grace and mercy, Jesus Christ showing us how to follow Him into the margins, expressing His grace and His mercy to those who are in need. In this snapshot, we'll look at two things fairly quickly, the breadth of God's mercy and the beauty of His mercy. The breadth and the beauty. Firstly, the breadth. We encounter Jesus and His followers here. He's gathered quite a crowd. He's done three years of miracles and teaching, and He has with Him on His way south from the northern part of Israel hundreds, perhaps even over a thousand followers. They've come to Jericho. Jericho is an oasis in an otherwise desert climate on the way south. It is northeast, about 18 miles of Jerusalem. It is an oasis city. It's well watered. It's possibly the most ancient inhabited city that we know of. Archaeological evidence shows us that it's, it is probably the oldest. Perhaps Damascus is older. And he and his followers are there. He's at the apex of his fame. He's gone viral. And surrounded by his followers, they're moving towards Jerusalem en masse. Now, all these travelers are going for a festival. It's Passover. So they have money, money for the travel and money to pay for the sacrifices they want to pay for the atoning of the sins of their families. So they have money on the road to Jerusalem, taking the Jericho Road, a dangerous road. It goes up thousands of feet, winding. And so the Jericho Road is known to be inhabited by two kinds of people who want to take advantage of the situation. The first are bandits who take advantage of the dangerous crevices to grab and rob and beat people. And the second are beggars who take advantage of the mass migration to Jerusalem to sit by the side of the road and hope to get enough for a day's meal. And this is where we meet our central character. Bartimaeus, a blind man. Luke actually tells us in this scene that there are two. Mark only bothers to mention the one who speaks. That's pretty typical of what history writers back then did. No harm, no foul. That's what they did. Bartimaeus has a name. 
Not many knew it then, but he would later become known to the church. He's son of Timaeus, but he's blind. To be blind in that culture, in that era, meant to be poor. You could not get work. Nobody gave jobs to blind people in that day. Culturally, you were often considered cursed by God. Socially, therefore, you were ostracized and you were marginalized, forced to beg by the side of the road every day to get enough food to feed you, shunned. Let us sit with Bartimaeus in the dust for a moment, people passing by you. You're seated by the roadside. You have your cloak beside you, hoping that someone will drop a shekel in and no one will grab the shekel before you can get it because you cannot see. You hear people cursing at you. You hear people muttering about you. You can hear from the footsteps people crossing by to the other side. Some seem to have a kind of pity for you, especially the children, perhaps. But you sit there hoping against hope that you can get enough to pay for the next day. And then you hear that Jesus is here. And hope, hope springs up in you because you know of the many miracles he has done. Most of Israel by now has begun to hear about Jesus, and he's coming through. And so what do you do? You let your longing be given voice, and you call out to Jesus as he did, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, that title, Son of David, is at that time known to be a messianic title. It's reserved for people who might be the Messiah that you think are the Messiah. The blind man can see Jesus better than most. He can see Jesus enough to ask him for healing. He is physically blind, but spiritually he can see. But somebody else cannot see Jesus for who he is, his followers. They can see physically, but they're blind to Jesus' heart for Bartimaeus and those like him. They're blind to Jesus' desire to make the crooked path straight to care for the poor, the blind, the disabled, the forgotten, and the marginalized. They're blind to the fact that Jesus is the answer to the cry given by the prophet Amos centuries earlier when Amos said, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The disciples try to hush Bartimaeus. They rebuke him because they don't think he's worth Jesus' time. They've shrunk the breadth of Jesus' mercy. He's busy going to Jerusalem to take his mantle of being Messiah. And Jesus says, I am busy putting on the mantle of Messiah. And it's exactly the opposite of the way you understand it. Why did they miss it? Because they're like me. When I looked at Daniel... I never got his name. He was a class of people, those people experiencing homelessness. And so I treated him in a transactional way as a class of people that would make me feel good about doing something and give him something, and we'd be done. I thought mercy was a good thing to do, so I would do it. 
but I didn't realize how central is the mission of mercy to the heart of Jesus. How about you? Are you like me? When you walk by those people who are experiencing homelessness, do you treat them as a class? Do you not get to know their name? Do you sometimes give money to feel good about yourself? And by the way, this isn't just people in the church. This is our culture. I've talked to so many not-for-profit social workers about the NIMBY issue in Toronto. I talked to the, the head of Young Street Mission about the frustration the neighborhoods where they are, the city is moving subsidized housing for the poor to. The city's chosen to, to, to declutter or decentralize the amount of people experiencing subsidized housing from the city's core out to an inner ring. And the people who live in the inner ring are resisting it. They like mercy and justice as long as it's downtown, not in my hood. I talked to a C-suite at a bank because we, need, we were trying to raise money, many of you heard this story, to pay for a specialized wheelchair for someone who'd become functionally paralyzed. And shaking his head, he said, Dan, I'm sorry, banks don't do that. That's too private. If we can't make a marketing campaign out of our giving, we don't do it. It's not a priority. Because there's something wrong with our heart. There's a blindness in us to the centrality of mercy and justice in the heart of God. It's too inconvenient. It's too messy. It's too hard. We don't know how to help, and it's not worth it figuring out how. That was me. How about you? What does Jesus do? He's at the center of this massive column of people. He's in the center, which in those days, in processions, with people in front of you and behind you, the leader is in the middle. It's almost, it's what monarchs did in parades, so it feels almost regal. And he stops the procession, and he says to those who are nearest, call him. He tells them as he tells us, call him to me. What is Jesus doing? He's saying to us, as he said to them, stop seeing them as a class of people not worthy of my time. Stop thinking of my mission as not including them. They are central to the gospel mission. Call them to me, he's worth my time. He ought to be worth yours. So, implication. Do some self-diagnosis. If they are not a priority for you, as they weren't for me, what's the obstacle? Are we looking up the ladder of success instead of down? Is it our pride? Have we gotten ourselves so busy with life that we don't have time for anything other than the highest priorities? Do we see them as a class? Or do we see them as central to Jesus' mission? The breadth 
of Jesus' mission is the breadth of his mercy. How wide is the mercy of Jesus? Certainly wide enough for the blind man on the side of the road. Secondly, the beauty, the beauty of God's justice. So they called the blind man. They said to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus, after calling Bartimaeus to himself, asks a rather stunning question. What do you want me to do for you? Now think about this. This is the Messiah with hundreds of people thinking he's going to go take up the mantle, the the throne of Israel, the regal one, finally resplendent in his majesty, going to Jerusalem. And he pulls a blind man from the side of the road, from the margins of the group, right to the center. And what does he do? He says, what can I do for you? Who asked that question? Who asked that question? Well, I know in K-dramas, the person who asked that question is the executive assistant. I know who asked that question. The servant asks the one they're serving. Unbelievable what happens here. Firstly, the whole identity of Bartimaeus is changed because of this personal interaction. Jesus is treating him personally. He's treating him like an equal. No, he's going under him to you are worth my serving. That kind of personal love is so powerful, but it's so publicly powerful as well because what happens to Bartimaeus in front of everyone? He's elevated from social leper to social equal with the rabbi they're following. unbelievable how this personal interaction heals his reputation, heals his social standing, heals him culturally and socially. And then Bartimaeus says, I want to see. And Jesus heals him physically. But in healing him physically, he says, your faith has made you well. You have trusted in me as your healer. You understand who I am. It has given you the greater healing. What I'm about to do when I get to Jerusalem and die on the cross is going to affect the greatest healing. You will be healed from the guilt of your sin if you're a follower of me and you trust in me because I will take the guilt of your sin upon myself. Bartimaeus, when he was on the side of the road, let me ask you, was it just for him to be so alienated culturally, stigmatized socially, completely quarantined economically to poverty? It wasn't just. Was it not a restoration of Bartimaeus to his essential dignity as a human being and as his essential belovedness as a child of God was not a restoring of cosmic justice happening here. Yes. 
This is mercy. This is grace. And this is justice. Men and women, the love of Jesus is so personal. And it's so holistic. He loved this man so personally that he didn't just, he could have just said, hey, you, you can see and keep going. But he wanted the total multidimensional healing and restoring of Bartimaeus, socially, culturally, physically, spiritually. He wanted it all, and he gave it to him. That, my friends, is the beauty of mercy. Mercy is personal. One of the problems, I think, with our culture is we've depersonalized mercy. We pay taxes, the government should take care of all of them, and we're happy. You can do this at a church. We, we, we noticed when we did our survey of us as a church, we wanted a church filled with mercy and justice, but when we were asked whether we personally would get involved, huge disconnect. You see, it's depersonalized. Let someone else do it. This isn't depersonalized. It's intensely personal. It's completely holistic. So church, implications for us. Mercy involves personal interaction with people, getting to know them, getting to know their name, helping to care for them in a holistic way. I preached on this years ago. Convicted by this, I said, the next time I run into that guy, I'm going to learn his name. <laughs> and he came back looking for money. I think he wanted to sweep up or something. So I learned his name was Daniel. And I was like, oh, we, we know each other now. And we began to talk. And we went for coffee, and I began to get to know him. And I heard his story. He was a trucker. Trucking is intensely boring. He didn't have that many podcasts after he'd run out of music to listen to and, and, and CDs to listen to. He started doing weed. He started hanging out with truckers who did weed, and then they had other drugs, and suddenly he was addicted. He lost his family. He was a normal guy with a great heart. And so I remember that I needed to try and do something that was healing holistically. And so I think I talked to Lee Mark. Lee Mark, you can probably remember this. We, we had a discussion with him, and he said, you know, I'm really good at panhandling because I'm good with people. But when I come home from panhandling, the other homeless people know this, and they tend to take my money from me. And then he showed me his teeth. He had two recently knocked out because he tried to defend himself. And I said, okay, well, what, why don't you, on your way home, because you hang out and sleep near us, why don't you drop some money off? We'll be your bank, and we'll hold it for you. And so you'll have less money when you go, and we can help you very practically. Oh, great. I was so wonderful. He was so thankful. So I told Lee Mark, and we created like this little envelope for petty cash that he could put money in. And he said, I'm actually broke right now. Can I have 20? And I said, so we gave him a little advance of the 20. But he said, you guys are really trying to help me. Thank you. And then he disappeared. He wasn't transformed the way Bartimaeus was. But what you see here 
is a man transformed by Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I couldn't transform this man. I felt defeated. And you may too. You may not have the same objection that they do, that they're a class. You may have gotten over that. You, you may have understood that mercy is personal and multifaceted. But you're scared. Or you're skeptical. So I want to talk to those two people. For those of us who are skeptical that a miracle like this could happen, we don't see miracles much in our day. It's not the way the universe seems to regularly operate. Our scientific advancement over the centuries has, quote-unquote, ruled them out, or so they tell us. But I want to ask you, has it, though? If God exists and He created the physical universe, don't you think He has the power to intervene in it? Of course He does. It just logically follows, if God exists, that He can do this. So you'd have to be able to prove that God didn't exist. You'd have to know He didn't exist to know it couldn't happen. It's the only way it goes, logically. And history tells us that a man named Jesus claimed that there was a God, that He was that God, did miracles, was killed by Roman judicial processes, and three days later physically rose from the dead and was seen by hundreds of people. This is a fact of history. The resurrection of Jesus shows that God, when He wants to communicate something to us, can do it. And He can use miracles to do it. Jesus is the primary example. And by the way, men and women, He wants to communicate with you and me. He wants you to know His love. He wants you to know the beauty of His mercy. He wants you to know that Jesus died for you and rose for you and offers full forgiveness for you. For our sake, says 2 Corinthians 5, He made Him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if you're a skeptic, I want to tell you, I understand I was skeptical right into my university years, but the fact of the resurrection broke into my worldview and made me doubt my doubts. I challenge you to let that fact lead you on a search for truth. And for those of us who are Christians, I know we get off the streetcar right here anyways. We do too. We pull the cord, we get off, because we do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We cheer on those who go into mercy ministry, but like me, we don't think we can really transform anyone. We think we might just get fleeced for money, like I felt when he took off. We read this story and go, I cannot make a blind person see. I can only make a fool of myself because I'm not Jesus. No, you're not. And you were never meant to be. We are not called to be Jesus. We're called to introduce people to Jesus and let Him do the work of transformation. That's why mercy and grace always go together. We can do that, can't we? We can love people with the love of Jesus. We can tell people about the Jesus who loves them. We can do that. You see... When you see this story, you locate yourself. Most of us who are Christians locate ourselves as the disciples 
who are getting in the way of Bartimaeus meeting Jesus. And so we are meant to. That is the first step. But you're not meant to stay there. Because if that's all you do, you will go, oh, I should get in the way of people. I'm going to introduce people. I'm going to, out of duty, the right thing to do is I'm going to follow his teaching and I'm going to try and enter into this. Yes, it will be duty, but it will not be delight because you've not yet entered the beauty of mercy. Jesus invites all of us now to see ourselves not as him, not as the disciples or followers around him, but to see what he did and to see what it means for us, because what did he do? He brought Bartimaeus into the center and said, how can I serve you? He made Bartimaeus at the same level as everyone else, and so everyone else who is his disciple should say, Bartimaeus is the same as me. I see him in me, and therefore, I see myself in him. When you see yourself as Bartimaeus, you see yourself truly, perhaps for the first time, for you were blind to the love of God. You were filled with your own desires, your own plans, your own agendas. You may still be. God is somewhere out there on the shelf, but he doesn't run my life. I'm, not, I'm functionally the runner and chief executive officer of my life. I will not allow God to rule my life. I will not allow God to guide me. And in so doing, you become independent from God. The culture calls it freedom. The gospel calls it tragic sin. Because sin is independence from God. Sin is independence from and contradiction to the way you were made. You were made to be in communion with a God of love. Not letting God be the God of your life is a total contradiction to how you were created by Him and you're blind and alienated, marginalized from the life that God has for you. C.S. Lewis said it well, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We fool ourselves with drink, sex, and ambition when God offers us infinite joy. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Men and women, when you walk away from God, you walk away from the source of joy and light and life, and you experience spiritual death. Romans 6.23 says it so clearly, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, because Jesus, when you were blind and alienated, unable to come to Him, He comes to you. In your blindness and in your sin, He walks to you, and He walks to you, and then past you to the cross for you. And on the cross, He hung and took your sin, your blindness, your selfishness to your own cruelty and vanity and pride. He took the wrong of it, the poison of it, the guilt of it, and he assumed the debt for you. He absorbed the poison of you. He took the anger of God at your foolish, selfish independence and the guilt of it, and he bore it for you. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So when you see yourself as Bartimaeus, then ask yourself, aren't you glad that God did not pass you by? Aren't you glad that God did not just stay in his comfortable place, heaven, at the right hand of God? Are you not glad that God was willing to come down into the muck and the mire and the dust of human messiness and evil and yours and looked you in the eye and said, come? What can I do for you? I'll do what you don't even know I need to do for you. I'm going to die for you and pay the sin that you would otherwise pay. And if you see yourself that way, then mercy's beauty will begin to gush into you. And the beauty of Jesus will begin to become new to you again. And the glory of the personal, holistic, transformational way of seeing mercy and grace will become something that you love. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest moral philosopher and theologian that we have produced in this continent, was watching a bunch of churchgoers in his church be transformed by a personal encounter with Jesus, wrote this, I found there is a difference between believing a person is beautiful and having a sense of their beauty. The first idea rests only in my head, but the heart is concerned with the latter. So taste, men and women, taste the beauty of the grace and the mercy of Jesus to you, Bartimaeus, to you, Bartimaeus, to you, Bartimaeus to all of us Bartimaeuses. And then, having tasted that goodness, go and show Jesus to the people at the margins, begging on the side of the road. Mercy and justice are not the nice decorative flourishes of the gospel. They're the heart. They're at the heart of the gospel. Get on the Jericho Road. Allow the sweetness of Jesus to pour out to someone in your life that is in need. It doesn't have to be someone experiencing homelessness. You may have single parents in your area. You may have people who are kids who are troubled. There are mercy and justice opportunities all around you. Open your eyes and open your heart. Get on the road. Do it together. Do it with your small groups. Do it with your friends. Do it with the people in your geographic area. Become a light of gospel love and mercy where you live. Finally, partner with the opportunities that are so available. I'll give you one. Young Street Mission is doing a Thanksgiving uh, drive uh, for things that people experiencing homelessness and dislocation need. It's on our webpage, our partnership to, to bring goods and food, clothing to the most needy. Take a step in the shallow end. Start there if you need to. Several years after my uh, learning experience, Daniel showed up again. It was two or three years. I think he was ashamed of what he had done to us. And he came back and he told us about his increasing misery. And we brought him in, sat him in our office, and he started to cry. 
says, I don't know what it is about you guys and this building. But every time I've come, I felt the love of God in this place. We didn't transform him. But we introduced him to the love of God and he felt it. Go and do the same. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. Mercy is a subject that scares many of us, defeats many of us. So I pray for an awakening and a revival of love for those who are unloved by our culture, by our city. And I pray that you would help us to become more like that. <laughs> uh, thank you for the ice cream and bubble tea question and answer time. You're, but can we offer it to others outside the church instead? Yes, you can. Why don't a bunch of you go to the people in the tents and invite them to come? A, a number of them came the last time we did this. Go for it. Love to see you do that. Why does God withhold healing at times? I have no idea. He's God. He's wiser than I do. He doesn't listen to me. Thank God he doesn't listen to me. Seriously, that's my answer. There's another question. Why is Jesus forgiving a sin considered the greater healing? Um, how long do we have? 30 seconds, right? If you're blind for this life, you're blind for the average lifetime of a person, 90 years. If you're healed by Jesus, you will have eternal life with God forever. I'm not a mathematician. I had a math PhD explain the difference to me once. He said, Dan, your life is going to be 80 years. Your life compared to all of recorded and even pre-recorded history is a dot on a huge line. But all of recorded history compared to eternity is itself a tiny dot on an infinitely long line. Your life is a dot on a dot on an infinitely long line. Are you going to invest in the dot or in the line? Eternity, men and women, is forever. And what Jesus says, if you accept the gift of me, you get eternity. You get a perfect new creation. You get a perfect new body, and you get eternal forgiveness for all of your sin, and you get to live with no evil for all eternity. It is the best decision I've ever made. It's the best investment I could ever do. It's the best healing we can ever offer. Let's stand and respond.